My name is David Porter. I am the author of Five Minutes to Live. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to this podcast. Uh, just a few things to, to note. Um, in the description of the podcast, I've got the purchase link if you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live. I've also got my Facebook and Twitter links so you can find me. I'd love to hear from you. I'll interact with you. Um, the, the purpose of this podcast, we are reading through Five Minutes to Live chapter by chapter, releasing a new chapter each week, and I release them on Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m. Central Time. Now, if you're here and you haven't started with the prologue, episode number one, go back, start there, or you're going to be completely lost. Please set the alert notification, whatever that looks like on your podcast of choice, so that when the new episode is released, it alerts you. Now, one other thing, Five Minutes to Live has a lot of footnotes. There are a lot of scientific references and a lot of Bible verses. In each episode, I'll list all of those footnotes so you'll have them. You can go back and research, read about the people, read about the articles, read about the science, and read the Bible verses. Finally, I've got a new book that I've finished writing. It's called 60 Seconds of Silence. It's not out yet, but as soon as it is, I'll go back and list the link so you can purchase it in the description of each episode as well. Now, with that, thanks for being here. Let's get to it. Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022. I trust that this is going to be your most fantastic year. I'm believing God that this is going to be my most fantastic year. I think God's got great big things for everyone that's listening to this podcast. Thank you for being here. And guess what? We're going to read chapter 22, starting now. Chapter 22. Since the battle at the airport yesterday, I had felt alone, with only moments of cautious relaxation. Most of the time since that gunfight, I have been alone. I've been dodging bullets, escaping the grip of mercenaries, basically running for my life. There have only been a few moments that I have had a feeling of relative safety, when Aaron saved me from the mercenaries at Dr. Kaplan's house, or when I was in that grimy hotel, locked in my room, alone, I felt safe. But those moments were few and far between. For most of the time since Jessica was kidnapped, I had been on high alert. All of that changed the moment I drove the stolen SUV into the hangar, hangar number three at the world's tiniest airport. What I saw inside the hangar was a small army. They were dressed in tactical gear, but not in tactical dress. In other words, they were dressed like everyday citizens, except they were carrying machine guns, grenades, and different types of armament. It was like Aaron had called his office and all of the agents had dropped whatever they were working on and were now here to defend me. As we were pulling to a stop, Aaron said, everything will happen quickly because we are trying to get you out of here. We have several missions culminating right here, right now. This has become the de facto staging ground. You and I won't be staying. We will get on a plane with a pilot and leave the country, eventually making our way back to the United States. Once we are safely off the ground, a helicopter team 
will be sent to Dr. Adams' lab to retrieve her research. They are going to secure her laptop and bring it to us. Now, most of the agents here won't speak English, but it won't matter. We won't be here long, and we won't be talking much. Just as we exited the SUV, a woman walked up carrying a backpack and tossed it to me. It was heavy and had cords and handles on it. She said, Mizala, and pantomime pulling a cord from across her chest and a parachute opening. I nodded, put the backpack on and secured it with the clips in front across my chest and said, simple enough. She must not have spoken English because she just shrugged and walked away on to her next task. Aaron and several of the agents began almost immediately an animated conversation in another language. They were pointing to things at each other in my direction in the direction of the airfield. There was a lot of hand movements and shrugging of shoulders. I didn't understand any of it, but I was engrossed in the dynamic of the conference. Aaron was directing the conversation, explaining or pleading or commanding. I, I couldn't tell. I was so involved in watching the conversation, I didn't notice the little canister roll into the hangar behind me. That little canister was what is commonly known as a stun grenade, a, a flash grenade, or a flash bang. I like the flash bang name the best because it accurately describes what the small grenade does. It isn't meant to do harm, but to impair. When it explodes, the grenade, the flash bang, sparks a brilliantly sharp light, temporarily blinding anyone who has their eyes open. That's the flash part of the flashbang. The blindness lasts for approximately five seconds. The second part of the flashbang is the bang, a loud concussive explosion that dazes by causing hearing loss and disturbing the fluid inside the ear, which causes loss of balance and, in my case, utter disorientation. The mercenaries had found us and were beginning their assault. Maybe it was my lack of training. Maybe it was because I had never experienced a flashbang before. Maybe it was dumb luck at how close to the explosion I had been. Had I not been knocked unconscious, I might have stood there when the assault began. Whatever the case, when I came to my senses, I was lying on the floor away from the activity, and there was a gun battle raging all around me. The mercenaries had entered the hangar after the effects of the flashbang took hold. There were dozens of them already in the hangar. I couldn't hear anything but a high, intense, high-pitched ringing in my ears. But I could tell the battle was extreme by the number of shots being fired. I could tell by the small flaming explosions expelled from the gun muzzles with each shot and the number of mercenaries and Mossad agents already lying on the floor, either injured or dead. I slithered to a covered position behind the SUV and saw Aaron. He was engaging the enemy and tried to communicate with me. I couldn't hear anything he was saying. I tried telling him that, shouting, but I didn't think he could hear anything I was saying. Aaron looked at me and then, like we were playing charades, mimicked his plan. He pointed to me and to himself, and then he used two fingers like he was walking. I nodded, understanding that he wanted the two of us to walk, or better yet, to run somewhere. Then he pointed to a side door that was less than 10 feet from where I was hiding. Again, I nodded. Then he made a motion like he was flying. I understood. We were going to run to that door 
get in the airplane, and take off. Nodding at each other, Aaron counted down on his fingers. Three, two, one, and we started running. Somehow, miraculously, we made it to the door. Running out of the door and at a full sprint, we made our way toward a small, single-propeller airplane. The pilot was already on board and had the engine coughing to life. My hearing was beginning to return to me, and I could hear the little engine beginning to cough to life. I didn't know if there was going to be enough room for the three of us to fit in the little plane's cabin, but before we even made it there, a streak of howling smoke washed past us, and the airplane burst into flames. Somehow, from somewhere, one of the mercenaries must have shot it with something, a, a rocket-pelled grenade possibly, causing it to erupt in front of us. There was no saving the plane or the pilot. Aaron never broke stride. He diverted to the left of the flame-ravaged little aircraft, which took us further from the mercenary stronghold, toward a waiting helicopter. The helicopter was a dark color, and at first I didn't even see it. We jumped on board, and Aaron and I tried to find a place to sit. The cockpit was big, and a bench seat separated the front from the open back, but the rear of the chopper was full of big plastic crates. We had to shift things around to be able to sit. Aaron shouted, Be very careful with these! They go boom! It was incredibly hard to hear anything he was saying over the roar of the engine and the ringing in my ears. The blades of the helicopter began whirring faster and faster. Wind whipped us in the cabin and the plane cautiously took off. Because it was a helicopter, I was expecting to go straight up, vertical, and away from the danger, but that's not what happened. The helicopter pilot lifted off just feet above the ground, and like he was getting a running start, flew horizontally down the runway before lifting off, up and into the air. As this was happening, Aaron handed me some headphones and I put them on. He took another set and put them on. I could see his lips moving. He was trying to speak to me, but there wasn't any sound. He must not have had any sound either as I tried to communicate with him. We couldn't have been more than 10 to 15 feet in the air as Aaron and I began to try to fix our headphones. The pilot was speaking, but Aaron and I couldn't hear him either, but he didn't know it. So Aaron leaned over the front row of seats, adjusting some dial, trying to get a signal so we could all communicate. I noticed that he had placed his gun in the rear of his waistband. Again, I had that negative nudge, but it was overpowering me at this point. Action! Take action! Take action! The still, small voice was screaming to me. That's God speaking to me. I know it. What does he mean, take action? The pilot spoke and my headphone crackled with life. Assalamu alaikum. Do it, I heard on the inside. Only now I knew what I was supposed to do. I grabbed the gun from Aaron's waistband and turned it on him. Aaron froze. I had only been in this country a couple of days, but I knew that assalamu alaikum was not Hebrew. That was an Arabic, or better yet, a Muslim greeting, and not something two Mossad agents would ever say to one another. I said through the headphones, You're not Mossad, are you? Aaron smiled a devilish, evil smile and started to move back toward me. Don't move or I will shoot you. Just answer my question. In a flash, in a split second, 
Aaron shifted his weight back from leaning over the front row of seats and landed directly next to me. His right hand grabbed the gun while his left hand raised to strike at me, and then the unthinkable happened. The gun fired. Aaron's hand was injured, and he howled in pain, but the real shock came from the helicopter itself as it banked at an incredible angle. Alarms began blaring, deafening sounds as gears wrenched. I looked up and saw that the pilot had been shot, and no one was flying the helicopter. I had the gun in my hand, I had a parachute on, and that still small voice said, Jump! And out the door I went. End of chapter 22. If you're still here, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that reading. If you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live, the link is in the description below, and you can find my Facebook and Twitter links there as well. Drop me a line. Please subscribe and hit the bell so you know when the next chapter is released. And if you're enjoying this, please share it with your friends and family. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.